This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I have spent the last week in Tokyo on business. I've been here observing Japanese consumers participate in focus groups and talk about their feelings and beliefs about mouthwash and to evaluate potential new package designs. It seems rather absurd, really, to, partic- to describe my position as an observer, as what I've really been doing is listening. I've been listening to a translator as she narrates in English what the attendants in these groups are saying in Japanese. Her interpretations have been unusually creative, offering such statements as, the packaging looks lonely, and the design is like a fluffy painting. And I have been wondering if her surprising decoding is the verbatim representation of what is being said or the result of an imaginative reconstruction. I'll never know. Being in a country where the language and the alphabet are not only foreign to me, but also unreadable, has unabashedly reminded me how dependent I am on language and reading in order to communicate and relate. Not only am I dependent on being able to decipher signs or distinguish whether where I am is headed is joyfully welcoming or dreadfully dangerous, but also to reassure me that I know where I'm going and where I will end up. I have been humbled by both my acute dependence on this ability or inability and my utter lack of it during my time here. And I've been thinking about the adequacy of language and the inadequacy of interpretation. What is language really? How is it that words have meaning? What is the meaning of words? These are the basic questions of the philosophy of language. And language, like design, is a system of signs used to communicate. The act of communicating is a matter of letting other people know what we think, or in many cases, what to think. The signs that make up language get their meaning from our associations with them and our collective agreement of these associations. But John Locke, the great English philosopher, believed that rather than language, thought originates in experience. Out of the product of experience, ideas develop. And through the power of association, these ideas are transformed into complex mental forms like language. But language is a highly arbitrary and highly interpretive medium. Back when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I went through a particularly difficult phase in my life wherein my behavior, upon looking back on it now, could probably best be described as post-traumatic stress disorder. As a result of the disruption of my outer world, my inner world began to crumble and I developed a bizarre speech disorder. Whenever anyone asked me how I was doing or what the weather was like or any other rather innocuous question, I froze and found I couldn't answer. Inasmuch as I thought I knew how I was doing or what the weather was like, I felt that I couldn't be absolutely sure. 
What if my idea about how I was doing changed? What if the weather was different somewhere else? As I tried to answer these harmless questions, I found all I could muster were answers such as, well, maybe I'm feeling well, but maybe I'm not. Maybe it is raining, but maybe it's not. Maybe or maybe not became my standard answer for anything, including what I wanted for dinner. My mother and stepfather were horrified and angry at my inability to articulate an answer to even the most easy of questions, and I was punished for my lack of conviction and clarity. But for the life of me at the time, I couldn't fathom how anyone could be sure of anything, and I preferred to be grounded than have to utter a phrase that contained a fixed belief on anything, even including where I stood in the world. Given that language is our primary tool for thinking, can we perceive or describe something without first having a linguistic category for it? And where does nuance fit in? What about ambiguity? How can we accurately describe the meaning of the flutter across someone's face? I think that Mark Rothko describes it best as reflected in Bernard Malamud's heartbreaking introduction to the retrospective tome, Mark Rothko. He writes, Rothko liked to reminisce. One night he told me how he had left his first wife. He had gone off for an army physical during World War II and they turned him down. When he arrived home and told his wife he was 4F, he didn't like the look that flitted across her face. The next day he went to see his lawyer about a divorce. The French philosopher Jacques Derrida stated that we inhabit a world of signs without fault, without truth, and without origin. One of the central tenets of his philosophy, also called deconstructivism, is there is nothing outside the text. Deconstructivism is aptly named because it seeks to deconstruct the nature and meaning of language. Common phrases reflecting his ideology include, we really can't know if something is true or not, or my favorite, that depends on what the definition of is is. <laughs> Critics of Derrida complain that if words have no meaning, there is no meaning, or if there is, you cannot fully communicate it. I fundamentally disagree. Design is first and foremost a language that does not really need words in order to communicate. Like the flutter across Roscoe's ex-wife proves, symbols and action have as much profundity as words. In fact, facial gestures are all but universal and are far more trustworthy in reading a situation than any language could hope to be. Nevertheless, language can be helpful. In hiring a taxi to transport me from the middle of Tokyo back to my hotel, I found that the taxi driver had no idea what I was saying and where I was asking him to go. As my attempts to communicate proved fruitless, I began to ask passers-by if they could help me. One young Japanese woman came over to us and I asked her if she could help me tell the cab driver where I was going as it seemed I was lost. It seemed as if she understood the word lost and I started to feel relieved. Then she got into the cab with me and started feeling around the floor of the car. Then she falteringly asked me what lost. Before I could answer, she motioned to a few other people passing by, and suddenly five lovely, helpful, and generous people began looking for something I hadn't lost in and around the cab. I couldn't help but laugh and think about the various things one actually could lose. Your confidence, your your reputation, your keys, your dog, your faith, your shirt, your heart, 
my life. I just lost my way. It took a few minutes, but I was finally able to correct the miscommunication by showing everyone a postcard from the hotel I was staying in. The image did the trick, and the young woman, the cab driver, and the burgeoning crowd of helpful people and I all clapped in unison. Not a word was uttered, not a phrase was exchanged, but suddenly everyone was on the same page and everyone understood. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Elliot Earls. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Elliot Earls is a graphic designer and a performance artist. His work melds traditional graphic design with stagecraft, incorporating traditional media, including painting, sculpture, and photography, with digital video, spoken word poetry, and musical composition, resulting in delightfully curious, historically rooted, unprecedented art. He is the founder of the Apollo Program, whose commercial clients include Electra Entertainment, Nonsense Records, the Cartoon Network, Imaginary Forces, Polygram Classics, and Janus Films. In May of 2002, Earls, in association with Emma Gray, released Catfish, a 55-minute film on DVD that traces his work from the lab to the stage in a highly manipulated digital film incorporating animation, stop-motion photography, drawing, typography, and live action. It is extraordinary. Earls was appointed designer at residence and head of the graphic design, the graduate graphic design department at Clambrook Academy of Art in July 2002. Welcome, Elliot. Hello. I'm very happy. Hi, to be Elliot. How are you? I'm so happy to be with you. Good, good. This little loopy from the uh, time difference, but yeah, other than that, all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I have so many things that I want to ask you. Okay. Um, but the first is, and, and, and this sort of reflects back upon my monologue, how would you describe yourself when someone asks you what you do? How do you respond? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a uh, graphic designer, uh, performance artist, and musician. So you, you just incorporate all three? Yeah, I mean, I think the definitions are the are really kind of the problem, actually, because um, in a way, if we think about it, how many of the classically trained graphic designers that are listening to you today um, explicitly design graphics, as an example? Um, if you look mm-hmm. at if you were to look at Bruce Mao as an example, he's he's designing uh, currently or involved in the design process of communities in, in Latin America. So, I mean, I think that the kind of um, the naming conundrum is one of the big uh, one of the big issues, really. Well, I, I found a wonderful quote of yours, which I, which I think aptly described the conundrum of describing somebody that's multi-talented. Sure. This is what you say. I think exactly a year after leaving graduate school, I let go of any concern for how my work is culturally located. I figured that the only way to make truly powerful work is to follow the bliss. It is simply irrelevant whether I am considered a graphic designer proper or a performance artist or a filmmaker or an artist with a capital A. Absolutely. Society has a desperate need to categorize everything. Absolutely. So tell me, tell me a little bit about following the bliss. Uh, well, I think a lot of it stems from going to an, uh, an undergraduate school and being classically trained in, the, in, in uh, design methodology and realizing how truly powerful this set of skills that we have uh, or that, that a lot of us uh, in the design community have, but then being frustrated with the kind of compartmentalization and the very strict um, divisions of labor that happen within uh, traditional design firms. So, in other words, if, if, if you're working, um, if you... If you're working, uh, generally if you're working at a, at a design firm um, or in a corporate situation, oftentimes what uh, you'll find is that there's a, 
very um, narrow definition of the uh, of the kind of thing that you're able to do. And when I was uh, when I was in those environments, I found that um, that I was really yearning to explore uh, media manipulation and uh, media creation. And so I pretty much just decided that um, society um, uh, has a certain set of expectations for us that may not, in fact, correlate with, uh, with um, what our um, internal voice is telling us might be the right thing for, uh, for us to do. Yeah, those pesky societal yeah. expectations exactly right. <laughs> get us into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I want to come back after our break and talk about that as well sure. as some of your history and some of your, your – I'd like to talk a lot about Catfish and then sure. about work that you're currently doing. Um, but I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the multifaceted, multi-talented Elliot Earls. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four hundred ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth—we cover it all. Voice America Business. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masala. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Luis Blanco and Michael Uman are the creative directors of Interspectacular, a concept studio known for its wacky print and broadcast work. Luis and Michael, the work you did for Comedy Central has a street art look to it. What inspired you to go in that direction? We wanted to go as far in the other direction from that kind of polished, glossy network look. And we thought, well, what if it's just like kind of black and white Xerox that's chopped out and kind of stuck on? The thing is, it's not so much that we wanted to make Comedy Central a street art network, because that's not what it was meant. It was going to those sources and seeing what techniques and methods these artists were using to create imagery and using that as a source of inspiration. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael tell us more about where their inspiration comes from. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3 o'clock Eastern Time and 5.15 in the morning in Tokyo, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is performance artist, designer, musician, and educator, Elliot Earls. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Elliot, I believe we have a caller on the line. We have Gazela. Gazela, welcome to Design Matters. 
Hi. Hi, Debbie. This is Gazalia, actually. I'm sorry about your name. I'm it's very okay. sorry about I that. Think I, I sent you an email a couple of days ago about yes. my um, project that I was working on. But um, hi, Elliot. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Um, I'm Very actually good. a student calling. I'm a mm -hmm. third-year graphic design student, and I wanted to ask you a couple questions. Sure. One is um, your experience at Fabrica and why you chose to, um, what compelled you to go there, and um, how was your experience there? Uh, my experience at Fabrica was uh, incredible. Um, uh, I'm not sure if this is public knowledge, but uh, what the heck, which is um, that when uh, Luciano Benetton and Oliviero Toscani had a falling out, um, they, uh, the people uh, that run uh, Fabrica had this, this notion of hiring two designers or artists uh, or both um, to, uh, on a year-long contract to uh, replace uh, Oliviero. So when he left, I, was, uh, I, was, I commuted uh, to Fabrica uh, one week a month uh, from New York, and uh, it was culturally an amazing experience. And the people that are there, from uh, Giorgio Camuffo and Renzo Dorenzo um, and Omar Volpnari, among others, are really, really amazing people. And the, the students, uh, some of them are actually part of, or have actually ended up coming through my graduate program as well. So it's uh, it's really a great place. Wow, well, uh, and also. Um I wanted to ask you about uh, students who sure. uh, are looking for, or including myself, are mm -hmm. looking to go to a master's degree program. Mm -hmm. And how would you um, guide students uh, mm -hmm. in undergraduate programs in order to yeah. choose um, or go about choosing where to go and how they would uh, be? Uh, yeah, excellent question. That? Well, this is going to sound, I think. Um, like a PR pitch or something, but I do honestly think I do honestly think that graduate education can be uh, one of the most amazing experiences uh, in life. That it can be truly empowering without a without a uh, uh, hint of irony or a shade of irony um, in terms of the, the word empowering. And that uh, as as a young student, I think that um, the best the best route uh, to my mind. Is to work to to work for a year or possibly two uh, after after graduating, and then identify a couple of what you would think are the best schools in the country. Uh, hopefully, you'll consider Cranbrook among those. And um, then, what I would do, honestly, is I would I would go and I would actually spend the time to uh, interview or to meet with the heads of the of the, of the programs, or to actually go visit the school, mm -hmm. and um, you know have have a degree of self-awareness that uh, when you're in the environment that feels right, I'm firmly convinced that you'll know it and then uh, have the conviction and the courage to uh, to uh, work hard and follow that. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. And thank thank you, you so much for calling. Thank you. I love our first, I love our first time callers, so yeah. thank you so much for, for calling in and listening to the show. Thank you. Take care. Bye. So, Elena, I want to talk to you. You just, you just said something that really hurts my interest, courage and conviction. Yes. Talk about courage and conviction. Well. I, I know, I know, I mean, that's a very broad question, so let me, let me try and make, sure, it, sure. Like, make it a little easy for you. I know that you've talked uh, quite a lot about being fired for general incompetence, mm -hmm. both from your very first job out of school and then yes. later on after your first job 
in gra- from graduate school at yeah. Electra Records. Yeah. Um, and I know that those both of those um, terminations, uh, to say politically correctly, uh, yes. fired, <laughs> yes. really resulted in, in a good part of who you are and how you approach your work. Um, where did you, how do you, how do you find that courage within yourself if that's at all possible to articulate? Well, it's incredibly difficult, I think, especially, especially, uh, given, um, this, these ideas, these kind of broad categories, or very actually narrow categories of graphic designer, artist, contemporary artist, um, designer at a record company, uh, or, you know, those, there are societal uh, expectations within every environment. I'm, I'm going to struggle to articulate this without going into vast generalities. But even in the even in the current position that I'm in, there there are expectations on exactly what it is that you would that you should do. Now, Cranbrook is an incredibly enlightened place, uh, filled with really good people, and um, so I think that to a degree. Um, there's less of that in, in this environment, and people are incredibly supportive of the kind of thing that I'm doing. However, you know, when you're doing things, I think when you're really doing um, work, uh, when you're, I think when you're really living in a way that um, that you're navigating a kind of career and trying to trying to construct a type of career and life that is not. Um, is not um, a kind of uh, formulaic, or uh, that's too pejorative of a term, but a um, a kind of life that's prescribed. There are choices. There are choices that you that you have to make at times that um, that will that will in fact require you to be strong. Um, so uh, you know, I can I can speak if, if I, I think I can speak in more in more uh, specifics. However, I think, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a hard thing to actually uh, to put into words. And I should also say, I should also say that, you know, with the uh, with the luxury of, of time, I, I can see from the perspectives of the individuals who terminated my my employment that that was uh, something that was merited. You know, I mean, I think mm. the first termination when I said I was fired for general incompetence, it was because I was very young and um, really didn't didn't uh, didn't have didn't possess the necessary skills. On a, on a pragmatic level to uh, to accomplish the tasks that I was asked to do, I think intellectually I had I had um, uh, had it covered, but the actual skill sets I was above. I think now I can see that I was kind of above my head. Well, after you graduated Cranbrook and you went to Electra Records, mm-hmm, yeah. from what I've read, mm. the reason that you got fired was that you tried to do a rather subversive, I guess, for lack of a better word, CD cover for the Eagles. And Michael Bolton. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. curious what were you trying to do for the Eagles and Michael Bolton? No, it's, got it's, you it's, more, it's actually more that when I was a graduate student at Cranbrook uh, under the McCoys, there was quite an avant-garde spirit that was taking place uh, in the design studio, and um, I internalized to a degree the mythology and a lot of the kind of a lot of the kind of things that we were that that we were dealing with and felt that there should be a place within contemporary design culture for this for the kind of for the kind of uh, experimentation the kind of attitude that was happening uh, within the, the Cranbrook graduate studio so when i was actually in those in in the electro records uh, environment um, i think that there was a, a degree of inflexibility that um, that i had that could be could have been construed as a kind of um, a kind of uh, arrogance 
um, and it wasn't it wasn't about an arrogance. It was it was about I think to a degree it was about a certain set of principles that I was trying to enact. I was actually trying to do the best job that I possibly could. So the, the, while the album covers may have may have felt subversive, it was more that the entire spirit of the kind of thing that I was attempting to do was subversive. So you know, n- negotiating that kind of professional space, I realized that that was not, that I was going to have to, I wanted to be a designer with a capital D, you know, I wanted to work in those environments, what I realized was that the kind of individual that I, that, that I am, and the kind of, um, the kind of uh, program that I have, uh, don't, does not necessarily fit into that kind of environment. So what is the difference between a designer with a capital D and a designer with a lowercase d? Well, I'm talking about a kind of cliche, actually, and that's what I realized, which, you know, back in the, back in the, um, I think back in the late 80s and early 90s, the design scene in New York was much more monolithic than it is now. I mean, I have 23-year-olds that graduate from my program that are designers with a capital D, or 24-year-olds, 25-year-olds that are running, you know, running um, motion graphics firms in Chelsea, and, you know, they're doing, they're they're self-actualized human beings. I think that uh, that uh, things that what I'm talking about was was an idea that I was tr- that uh, that I set out to try to uh, that I set out to try to live. That um, that um, you know may have been a cliche actually. Now, from in in, in your movie in your DVD movie mm-hmm. Catfish, yeah, you actually say that you are a designer and not a fucking biochemist, which I really love. <laughs> Pithy yet degenerate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but, but tell, what did you mean by that? Uh, Aside from the obvious, <laughs> you're not a biochemist. Was well, I mean, if, I think that my work connects back to a history and tradition within graphic design that, um, that you know, starts with, may have started with the Cabaret Voltaire and the post-World War One avant-garde. I think that my work... Uh, links back to the kind of work that Kurt Schwitters was doing or uh, El Wazitsky. And I think that what's interesting is, you know, I don't know that those people would consider themselves graphic designers, but they do have had quite a profound effect on on, on, uh, on our history, on our shared history. So, I mean, I think the, the kind of thing that I was trying to establish was that even Catfish, this Catfish DVD that I made, is in fact is in fact still it's still graphic design it's graphic design it's motion graphics it's treating the film plane as a um, as a field of text it's uh, so that's pretty much what I was trying to do Ellie for our listeners that might be interested in, in purchasing your, your film where can they go and get it www.theapolloprogram.com and that's you have to spell it A-P-O-L-L-O-P-R-O-G-R-A-M.com Wonderful. Well, when we come back from our break, I would like to talk to you a little bit more about your movie. Sure. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is performance artist, designer, musician, and educator, Elliot Earl. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular, the concept studio that designed the look for Comedy Central. Where do you guys get all your ideas? Uh, you know, I don't. I just. I think a lot of it is just I'm informed by pop culture. I've been a mass consumer of pop culture 
from watching schlocky horror films. I love subculture, comic books. I look at bad science fiction movies, you know, cartoons. You know, you catch me most Saturday mornings. No kids, just me watching Saturday morning cartoons. We spend, like I'd say, a good part of the day just cracking jokes and entertaining ourselves. And we know that if we, you know, do a, tell a story that makes us crack up, we're sure that there's somebody else out there who's going to see some of the humor that, you know, we're trying to present. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael talk to us about working in a creative team. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. You know, when you talk about jazz, most people think of the blues. But Matisse, Bearden, Lawrence, Stuart Davis, and other 20th century masters inspired by this music saw a whole range of colors. For me, jazz is a visual medium, and maybe nobody proves that better than Nicholas Troxler, who spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. Now you can hear it from the man himself, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's acoustic Masada. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the most noble city of New Orleans, Saturday, March 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the House of Swing. Go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime event and see how Troxler saturates his work with the rhythmic energy of pulsating swinging jazz music. Yes, indeed. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from Tokyo, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is performance artist, designer, musician, and educator, Elliot Earls. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Elliot, our phone lines are open, 1-866-472-5790. And I believe, Elliot, we do have a caller on the line, Gregory from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Hello. Um, I have a question. Did you did you always want to be a graphic artist, or did you want to be an actor, or did the performance come after being a graphic artist? Uh, no, I, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to be an artist, and I consider graphic design an art form. Um, so, and the, the performance stuff was out of necessity, which is that. Uh, so I made this I made these series of CD-ROMs, one called Throwing Apples at the Sun, and one called. Uh, I slingshot lines, and they were 30 minutes of music and spoken word tracks, and they were uh, uh, posters uh, and an integrated uh, multimedia composition. So when I actually when I sent it out to people, I would get a lot of reaction, like, "What operating system does it run on, dude? Does it run on like, Windows 98 and shit?" And I was like, uh, "No." So um, my career was really actually doing quite quite um, terribly in terms of financially, although. Uh, I was traveling a lot and doing a lot of lecturing, um, and I was living in the New York area. So there was this theater on uh, Spring Street uh, in Soho called here the Independent Arts Center, and I put in a proposal there and said, "Look, what I want to do is a technologically mediated poetry reading, and basically take this CD-ROM that I had made and sort of project it and everything." Anyway, to make a long story short, after the first uh, the first night that I did this, there happened to be some people from um, from Italy that were that were uh, that, got, that were on one of my email mailing lists. 
just showed up at the show. They they were doing some work with the Museum of Modern Art, um, or for the Museum of Modern Art, and they came down to my show and invited me to to, uh, to perform in, in Italy. And I thought, huh, there's there's something to this. So basically, I took I involved in taking all of these graphic design skills, which I truly love typography, motion graphics, animation, all of those kinds of skills, as well as the methodology. But I'm 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 uh, involving myself in a much higher degree of uh, overt authorship and sort of a literary mode as well. Great. Would you ever do a play? If somebody asked you to do a play where you had to learn lines, would you? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, you got a play for me? No, no I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I had one for myself. But no. Yeah, no, okay. absolutely. Yeah, as a matter of fact, if you go to my website currently, I'm, I'm, I, my, my latest project that I've been working on is called the Serenade Motel, and it's based... It's a, a narrative, uh, a digital feature-length digital narrative film that's completely different than Catfish in that it is actually a story. There's a, a very simple meta narrative to it, although it is treated with animation and with an ensemble cast and music. There's a soundtrack that goes with it. It's a fairly ambitious project, and um, you know it is this idea of like graphic design uh, intervening into the digital film plane in a way. You know, like so basically, if you think about motion graphics, you think about what people do at motion graphics um, firms. It's like taking the motion graphics element of things, but also, you know, um, weaving that so thoroughly into the actual product and into the actual film that, uh, and, and, the, and the piece actually deals with, you know, deals with racism in America and deals with issues of human sexuality, and, and but not in an academic way, in a very literary way, I think. So. Great. Well, your work is tremendously interesting. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling, Gregory. Sayonara. Um, Elliot, I'd like to talk a little bit more about catfish. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I thought was very interesting was um, in, in, that was written about you. Rick Pointer has said that you draw on an inner rage yeah, yeah. in your performance. So what's that about? Well, you know, it goes back to the kind of the same kind of questions that you were asking me that I was fumbling to try to articulate, which is that I, I think that uh, that the great mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, and I think that um, that I, I realize that academia as well as business environments tend to be uh, tend to be a narcotic, and the rage that um, the rage that I, I feel is uh, is really about a kind of idealism um, and a kind of you know, principled idealism. It sounds corny, but uh, but in a way, I think that uh, life um, can be so much more than it is. And there's social injustice. There's a lot to be pissed off about. And, I, and you know, I actually think that I'm. I'm a, I think I think that my, while my work is infused with that, I'd like to think um, that I'm a person that's that's very concerned about the quality of my interpersonal. Um, uh, relationships and trying to be a, both a good man and and a kind person is is um, as ridiculous as that might sound. But so the work itself is a platform for me to understand these issues and to work out a lot of this stuff, um, you know, and using graphic design principles and uh, methodology uh, with other stuff to, to do that. Now I I read that you're quick to acknowledge the dangers of what you call disappearing up your own self-referential ass in yeah, performance totally. art. Yeah, totally. how, how do you manage to avoid doing that? Well, I'm trying to entertain. Like, if you go to my website currently and you see the trailer for this film, I, I think that Catfish what represents the first step in a trajectory towards... Like, I'm not trying to be uh, solipsistically navel-gazing, classic, academic. Not that all academics are. Most of my friends are academics, and they're not. But the point that I'm getting at is that uh, this is not this is not some kind of piece that's attempting to 
to uh, deal with uh, the field of intertextuality or some bullshit. This is a, a piece that's attempting to be, you know, a serious piece that contends with uh, with serious cultural issues, but that is entertaining. So the way that the way that I I would hope that the CD that I released uh, that's on iTunes um, called Elliot Earls and the Venomous Sons of Jonah, as well as the Serenade Motel and Catfish, I would hope that like when you actually see the pieces, that you're you're moved by them. And uh, mm. I'm, I'm striving. I'm striving with every fiber of my being to make powerful work as you know as nebulous and as hard as that is to uh, to um, define. Yes. Well, you talked about the quiet desperation of most people, yeah. and you also um, in Catfish one of the lines uh, in the beginning of Catfish when you're yeah. talking to the professor or the professor is talking to you, uh, the professor says the great mass of men are asleep who will yeah. wake them from their slumber, but yeah. the artist. Yeah. Now, I, I think though I, I have one issue with the idea of only the non-artist is living with quiet desperation. I think that the artists often are living with desperation that's probably not as quiet. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, so, I, I put a yeah. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. I was just really going to ask if if you felt that in in your particular life that 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 being an artist or being able to express yourself. Has, has taken the edge off the desperation. You know, what did Freud say that, you know, after you go through a, a successful analysis, you just are aware of your unhappiness? Yeah, yeah totally. As to before. <laughs> totally. Well, I, I was saying that I think that a lot of, a lot of the stuff is vicarious and, um, and, uh, I mean, I, I think that, uh, that, that the skill sets that, that, um, I possess and that a lot of your listeners possess, um, if I, if I reflect back on my life before it's almost to the day before I went to art school or design school and, you know, the Basel method of uh, foundation studies. Uh, if, I, if I reflect on my life before that, and it's, it's not just teen angst that I'm, that I'm reflecting on, it's that there was something that was sort of radically missing from my life. And um, I, had, I had much more, I, I think I was dealing with much more interpersonal pathologies then. And, and in a lot of ways, this kind of, this kind of, being able to actually create something, whether whether it's an annual report, which I did, um, or whether it's these films, it provided me with a kind of uh, um, a kind of empowering skill set that has allowed me to create a life that that I, to be honest with you, that I that as a child I dreamt of. I mean, I dreamt of writing music. I dreamt of making films and and uh, you know making bronze busts and and. Um, uh, you know, doing graphic work, and uh, I'm doing that, and it's because of that. So, and, and I, the other thing, the other thing I would like to address is that, you, you, that your point about that it does make it seem as if only the artist is the person that's uh, that's self-actualized and not necessarily living a life of quiet desperation, which I think that is ridiculous. I realize that my father was an insurance salesman. I love him with every fiber of my being, and and uh, and I think that he was uh, he was not leading a life of quiet desperation. Um, I, and I, I should say that I am a sucker for, uh, you know, for very heroic, um, um, uh, sort of the, you know, um, very heroic kind of uh, myths, and that is one mm. of them. <laughs> well, I think most people are. Yeah. yeah. Um, another another line from Catfish, you said, "Fear is the dragon of the soul." Yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, so, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of in your life? Uh, I would say I'm afraid of of not uh, of not firing on all cylinders, not uh, not self-actualizing. You know, I mean, mm. and I, who, who knows if that's even possible? But I feel as if, you know, it, it's strange. I feel as if um, 
in a lot of ways, uh, I see, not necessarily in grad schools, mind you, but I see people sleepwalking through life, and I think that life is far too short. A lot of it might might uh, might revolve around some sort of uh, fear of death or something. I have no idea, but 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 really, I think that a lot of it is about you know feeling that at moments, especially through design and through art, when making something, that you can sit back and you can say, like after making something, there have been moments that I've been truly shocked by the thing that I've made. Um, that I say, wow. I mean, uh, that um, uh, that it is. It's as if I didn't make it. Uh, all of the kind of. Um, you know that that I'm 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 standing in the presence of something that I I, I think is really quite beautiful, and uh, so what I'm what I'm trying to say is that through that process it feels as if that there ha- must be a way to kind of tap into that in more directly to actually um, to be able to sustain that kind of um, that kind of performance in a way. Mm. Now, Elliot, we have another caller. I'd like sure. to try to. Get in before the break, sure. Isabel. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Elliot. Um, Elliot, I want to. I'm just wondering. Do you think you'll always want to teach? I know it takes a lot out to just teach and mentor and so on. Or would you want to redirect your time and energy to other pursuits, perhaps, in the future? Teaching. I, I went to Cranbrook as a graduate student um, under the McCoys, uh, and that changed my life. Uh, or I, my actions while while doing that changed my life. And then when I got out. I think that I was afraid that a lot of my work was based on facility. In other words, like a, a very, you know, that I was good technically. I could make things that uh, that were crafted well. And I, fe- I found myself in university uh, situations all of the time. And I, I had this kind of nagging fear that if I simply told people how to do the kind of work that I was doing, that they would be able to do it very easily. So one one of my motivations behind coming back to Cranbrook was to kind of dispel that dragon to say, look. And also, I come making a, I made a sort of calculated gamble, which was that this notion that if I help somebody else, that we that we both gain from from the situation rather than it's. So in other words, it's not that if somebody else wins, if one of my students uh, wins a MacArthur or something, it does, it's not as if it's not as if I lose. I'm not uh, diminished in that relationship. So. To make a long story short, I don't anticipate not wanting to uh, leaving um, teaching because I've I have found that exactly what I thought was going to happen has, which is that my work has grown tremendously, tremendously from the quality of the relationships that I've had with my graduate students and with the other artists and residents. It's been one of the most amazing experiences, and it's because of the kind of integrity uh, and the beauty of that teacher-student relationship, and I've learned as much. In, in my latest project, most of the people that are in that, that project were at some point either students of mine at Fabrica or they were um, students, uh, former graduate students at, uh, at Cranbrook, and they're, they're colleagues of mine now. And, um, and I've had to open up a lot of the music. The mandolin player is a world-class mandolin player that's on my, on my CD. He's, you know, he was a, a former ceram- or ceramist here at, at Cranbrook, um, and... So no, I mean I think teaching is an amazingly beautiful, uh, beautiful thing that is um, really um, is, is, is spiritual, well, or can be. Of course, there's some there's some really nasty aspects of it too. But. <laughs> Grading. Um, well, I think as, as somebody that also does some teaching, I do have to say that there's probably nothing as honest as 
feedback from your students about what you're doing. And also I think that, that working with students gives you a really unique opportunity to clarify your beliefs in a way that, that nothing else does, that I think is, is truly um, important to both um, the artist and, and the human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to take a break, unfortunately. <laughs> I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the wonderful Elliot Earl. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please take away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular. So tell us what it was like to work with a creative team to design Comedy Central's identity. It was very collaborative. I mean, essentially, we pooled together a design team, and we made sure that the designers understood that it wasn't about your work. It was about the group's work. People would scan that stuff in, and we'd kind of put it in a shared drive, and it became the group's assets. I think the big challenge was to make each other laugh because somebody would do something, take a logo and tweak it just a certain way, being subversive and being funny with it, and the group would kind of like, oh, that's a cool little thing that's funny. So then you would start to see it virally through the work, and then it would kind of evolve and, and morph. And, you know, we would kind of sit and direct it, and we would kind of add marks to it, too. You know what? It's really all about entertaining ourselves in the end. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.49 Eastern Time. It is 5.49 in Tokyo. And you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is performance artist, designer, educator, and musician, Elliot Earls. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are open. This is your last opportunity to speak with Elliot. Please call 1-866-472-5790. Now, Elliot, we've been talking quite a lot about your work, um, your your film work, your design work. Let's talk a little bit about your music. I know that you... Uh, taught yourself to play guitar when you were at Cranbrook. Yeah, mm-hmm. What what made you decide to pick up uh, music at that point in your life? Uh, because I read in the Cranbrook PR package on the plane on the interview that uh, <laughs> that uh, it was uh, that Cranbrook was a place where experimentation and intellectual and artistic inquiry was uh, was. Um, Encouraged, and that uh, that ultimately it didn't matter what the nature of that was, as long as one did it with uh, 
integrity, passion, and commitment. And I thought, oh, well, I've always really been interested in, in music, and I didn't see that I, I believed what they said. And and the great Kathy McCoy actually was the one, even though I was getting I was getting uh, some shit for it, um, as you should in grad school. Uh, I was getting uh, some shit for it, and it was uh, very difficult for me to stay with it. But Kathy McCoy uh, said. Uh, Said no, no. You have no idea where this is going to take you. You, you should, you should just stick with it. I mean, she said it once or twice, but it was enough to kind of sustain the, to sustain the thing. She was, she's a very, she's a very wise woman. Now, in terms of getting shit, you know, I can understand getting shit because your ideas are being challenged. But why were you getting shit about bringing music into your work? Well, because once again, I mean, I, I was in graduate school in the early or in the yeah, early nineties, and the design scene, I think, was was a bit different. Even at a place, uh, Cranbrook, I think, has always kind of represented. Um, Represented a avant-garde um, rather than saying the avant-garde, but the point is, is that um, the design scene was a, was a bit different and much more monolithic. So I was I was I was told, or I, I had questions asked, of, you know, well, why are you doing music in a in a in a, uh, in a design program or even an art program where there's nobody that's going to be able to give you um, uh, feedback among other things, you know? And those are those are valid questions. I still have to ask my, my some of my students these questions. Of course I do, and. Uh, and they're valid, valid questions. So, um, I mean, now I, why, why is, why was feedback the criteria? It wasn't just feedback. It was just, you know, like, I mean, I, you're really, you're really digging for some stuff here. But basically, it was almost like, well, you can be a good musician within a, uh, within a graphic design program, but you can't be a good musician within a music program, among other things. And you know, this is the kind of, oh, this, I see. I this see. is the kind of thing that happens in grad school. Look, I have tremendous respect for everybody that I went to, 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 uh, to Cranbrook with, and um, they were, you know, that was what their role was. We weren't easy on one another, so I, I don't begrudge them that. Uh, I mean, I almost stopped doing it, but once again, in this environment, they actually, they actually uh, put their money where their mouth was. Kathy McCoy was like, no, no, she believed in the idea that you know you could you could do this stuff. So, but there, you know, there are valid questions about like, okay, if, what history and tradition is this going to connect to? Is that important? You know, there are a lot of issues. Not just relative to music, but in relationship to film. If you're doing film work, if you're going to be doing fashion-based work in, in the program, there's a lot of you know there are a lot of attendant issues. Are you a graphic designer? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Yes, among other things. Now, you talked about work in the early '90s being monolithic. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. I just mean, oh man, you're making it rough on me. Aren't you? I just mean oh, that. Sorry, uh, okay. <laughs> The New I'm really York, curious. Yeah, no, I mean, like, in, it's more like the early, uh, the late 80s, maybe even early 80s, but there, and maybe it's only in my mind, but the way that I was perceiving things, I think the way that a lot of people perceive things was there were a couple of firms, there were ten firms or something that, that you know, that, that kind of ruled uh, ruled the place, uh, the East Coast, and they were in, in New York City, and, uh, right. and um, you know, there was much more of a kind of, Pervasive, I think, class system. Now you can be one of my grad. And I'm thinking about someone, a couple of people in particular. But you can be one of my grad students who, at 25, is running a, running a design firm in in uh, in Chelsea and doing motion graphics for VH1 and other other firms. And these guys these guys make a lot of money and they get a, they get a lot of respect. And you know, if you were 25 in in, in 1988 and you had your own uh, design firm trying to do the same thing, the clients would look at you differently. The you know the the you know, the AIGA would see it differently. I think 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, those early 90s changed my life. I mean, I I was living in New York City at the time. I was working as a designer. I had my own design firm and gave it all up because compared to the work that was being done at the time, everything that I was doing, I thought was complete and utter bullshit. Right, and, so and you know being in New York, oh, it's completely, but I just, I really wanted to hear. Yeah, that yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to assume. No, you know, and I worked, I worked for Rudy DeHerrick and, and Richard Poolman, and I think that they were one of the firms that were, you know, that the, respectfully, I think they were one of the firms at the top of the food chain. That's may, maybe where I got myself in over my head, which was that, you know, they were competing with Tremaif and Geismar and Tibor Kalman, and, and uh, it was just much more, now it's like, I think that it's, it's a much different scene, which I think is good. Yeah. Now, you, you said one of the other things that, that um, I've read that you said is, um, although modernism has become shorthand for dogmatic, imperious, doctrinaire, dry, and anal, yeah. It is also rigorous, studied, quintessentially optimistic, and highly formal. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, do you? What, how do you? How do you um, consider the? Um, what, what genre would you put your work in? I mean, no, I'm a neo-traditionalist. No, I'm a neo-traditionalist. I work backwards from avant-garde forms to traditional forms, and actually, you know, in terms of a lot of the kind of central or fundamental tenets of postmodernism. I mean, I realize we live in a postmodern age, and this is a contradiction, mind you, but I, 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 I reject a lot of, I reject a lot of that, uh, I reject a lot of the kind of um, relativist bullshit, and I, that doesn't mean that I'm a fundamentalist either. I guess the, the point is, is that I think that uh, in a way, in, in, a, in a way, we've kind of, culturally we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I, I, as an example, I mean, in terms of the work, I find that, you know, I started out working with uh, experimental electronic music and um, in the early 90s when when uh, you could just st- sort of begin on, a, on an affordable level, you know, the first Macintosh uh, kind of uh, music composition uh, and, and re- sequencing programs while I was in grad school. And then, you know, as the ma- vast majority of culture has moved towards these electronic forms, and away from traditional songwriting, my entire trajectory has been to explore traditional forms. And, you know, my, my recent, the, the, the Elliot Earls and the Venomous Sons of Jonah stuff is Clawhammer-style uh, traditional roots music. And the kind of, the Serenade Motel that I'm working with, I think is still an avant-garde film because it subverts the film plane. However, if you look at it, it has a meta-narrative that runs over the top. So it has a very simple story that also, hopefully, Will will serve as an armature that you can hang the rest of the avant-garde work from. So I'm always I'm this sort of cultural contrarian that's working against, that's swimming against the stream. I think. Yeah, well, I think that's what makes your work so interesting. There's an incredible range to catfish, from discussions about the genome to gangster rap, and of yeah, course, yeah. Um, one of my favorite things was your use of the Sheila E. song, "A Glamorous Life." Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why did you pick that song, by the way? Uh, because I, when you said, what are you afraid of, among other things, I think a lot of it is, a, um, that, that, that song, the idea of ter- trying to lead a glamorous life, I think is one of the things that, that, uh, takes us away from doing powerful work and having truly, um, mm. truly having human interaction and human relationships with integrity, which is that, you know, like, I, of course, I mean, I want, I want to, I want to jet all over, uh, I have no shortness of ambition. I mean, I, I, I uh, I want the world and I want it now, but I don't want to sell my soul in the process. So there's this kind of weird contradiction that happens, you know, like I want to lead a glamorous life, but I don't, I value my, I value my wife, I value my, uh, my uh, children, and I value my relationships with my, with my friends. 
Well, thank you so much, Elliot. It's been a really wonderful conversation to have with you. We've come to our, the end of our broadcast. Um, again, very special thanks to Elliot. I'd also like to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb and Ryan at Voice America and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week on Design Matters back in New York is writer Marty Newmeyer. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.